Hello and good morning, everybody. Here we are, February 26th, only a few days left in the month. Um, I had a great weekend. I hope all of you did too. Also, just for what it's worth, I feel like I should throw this in as one little just piece of information at the top of the show because my producer decided to pop in and make sure that I was very well aware. Yesterday, everybody, Ric Flair's birthday. So if you're a Ric Flair fan out there, just know he's one year older uh, and still doing his thing. He is a crazy guy. Um, obviously, you guys all remember that I interviewed him several months ago. So uh, happy belated to Ric Flair and happy Monday to all of you. OK, so I talk about the fact that it's February 26th. I cannot believe how fast this year is going. Truthfully, I cannot believe it's about to be March. We just got through the last weekend of February. That means, of course, March Madness. Hey, college basketball fans right around the corner. But... In light of it almost being March Madness, I frame the question, could we be moving away from the liberal madness that has been plaguing the mainstream media for such a long time now? Because if you look hard enough, there are several examples that show that we could be possibly moving in that direction. Maybe once and for all, getting rid of the woke identity politics that have been taking place in mainstream media for, gosh, I mean, every time you look, I feel like you see them. So here's a couple examples that make me feel like we are moving in a different direction. Maybe the pendulum finally having swung so far to the left, maybe possibly coming back the other direction. The first thing I would point to is the SNL monologue from this past weekend. Comedian Shane Gillis delivered it. And for those of you who are not aware who Shane Gillis is, this was a comedian who five years ago was hired as one of the full-time comedians for SNL. Within five days, he was fired. Uh, That being because he had made some homophobic, uh, also some racial slurs. And specifically, he made a joke about an Asian-American or Asians. And they had just, coincidentally, SNL had also just hired their first Asian-American to work on the show. So those two things combined, they figured it was not a good idea for him to be a part of the cast. But interestingly enough, even though they got rid of him five years ago, He delivered the opening monologue on SNL this past weekend and made similar jokes. He made some racial slurs. He made some homophobic slurs. Uh, There were all different types of jokes that he made. Uh, I was laughing the entire way all the way through. I thought it was hysterical. Uh, But a couple of things that he said, he said it right off the top. He wanted to address the elephant in the room. He said, I was fired from the show a while ago. You know, don't look that up. If you don't know who I am, don't Google it. So he addressed it right off the top of it. Uh, but then he went on just to make jokes of all different kinds about his family. Uh, one of which I talk about, he made a homophobic slur. He was talking about the fact that when he was younger, he loved his mother. And he was kind of making fun of the fact that all kids are just obsessed with their parents uh, because they're, quote, gay. Right. Obviously, he's saying that in jest. Uh, but a lot of people could take Very much offense to that. I did not. I thought it was hilarious. Uh, Then he also went on to talk about the dynamic of his family. He said, my sister, my niece's mother, didn't know she could get pregnant. So she foster cared and adopted three black kids. And she finally got pregnant. A kid with Down syndrome. And her husband is from Egypt. He's an Arab guy. So you go over to their house and it's like getting into the craziest Uber pool you have ever been in. So obviously racial slurs, uh, making fun of all this. Uh, Plenty of people could have been offended, and they probably were because Shane Gillis actually made the point during delivering his monologue that he thought he would get more of a laugh. It seemed to be rather quiet in the SNL studio audience. Uh, I think a lot of people, if you ask me, 
probably wanted to laugh, but they were afraid to laugh because, of course, the climate that we live in, you can't laugh at anything. Otherwise, you are also deemed part of the problem. Comedians can't tell their jokes because, again, they're also part of the problem. Um, But the fact that he was on the show, just in essence, shows me that SNL might be waking up. The ratings are abysmal that we know. People are not watching like they used to because they do not allow their comedians to be funny anymore. The whole point of being a comedian is to say the things out loud that other people won't that are just funny. Shane Gillis being back on the show shows us that SNL might be waking up uh, and they didn't hold him back. He was able to say whatever he wanted to say. And uh, I give SNL props for that. So we'll see what they do next weekend. Will they continue this trend? We will find out. Now, another example that shows me we might be getting away from woke identity politics. Uh, This one feels personal for me because I worked there for nearly five years. ESPN over the weekend, they were having a college basketball broadcast. And of course, right now we're in the midst of Black History Month. So ESPN especially, they do a whole treatment over the course of February where they really just celebrate and honor uh, black players, coaches, uh, whatever they can do just to shed light on Black History Month, they will do no matter how, in some instances, ridiculous it might get. So anyways, over the course of this broadcast, there was a graphic that was put up on the screen. It said, coaches who, quote, happen to be black. Obviously, uh, by throwing in the word who happen to be black, it's almost like they realize how ridiculous this is. Uh, and they're now highlighting this. They don't just want to put it out front and center anymore. Uh, the producers clearly were having an issue with this. The announcers on television certainly had an issue with this. They actually reacted saying, why are we talking about this? This is irrelevant to the product. This is irrelevant to the storyline. We have gotten past the point where we need to highlight that the coaches are black. We do not need to be talking about their racial makeup. Uh, There are plenty of black coaches across all sports landscapes at this point. Uh, So I actually give the announcers props also for standing up uh, and pushing back against this because it has gotten ridiculous and people want to watch sports to watch sports. They don't want to be lectured. They don't want to be taught about politics. They don't want the woke identity politics that especially ESPN has been guilty of for such a long time. And I, for example, can comment directly on that because like I said, worked there for nearly five years. Uh, I was not able to say publicly the, the things that I felt or push back against the things that I thought were ridiculous. For example, I hosted a podcast, First Take, Her Take, and there was commonly the term black girl magic thrown out over the course of the show uh, because, you know, we would talk about black athletes, which fantastic. So we should celebrate them. Uh, we should celebrate them mostly not because they're black, but because they're tremendous athletes, right? Also because they're female athletes. If we want to celebrate anything, let's celebrate a phenomenal female athlete. We don't need to be talking about their skin color. But anyways, the term black girl magic was used here and there. I didn't like it because obviously uh, I'm white. And I just knew that if I were to use the term white girl magic, if I ever would have thought about throwing that out there just as, you know, why not? We have a fabulous white athlete. Why not celebrate the fact that she's fabulous and talented and white? I knew I couldn't do that, but it just bothered me. Uh, that this was allowed, and I felt a little bit ostracized from the conversation. So um, props to ESPN for pushing back against the wokeness uh, that we have seen all the time over there, and to these college basketball announcers who uh, also were not having it during this broadcast. So a couple of examples right there. Again, we're going to see 
how this develops if it continues to trend in this direction. Uh, Black History Month only has a couple of days left, but I feel like Black History Month is celebrated basically every month over at ESPN. So we'll see what happens there. And also, of course, um, on the level of SNL, what they decide to do with their product as well. But now let's bring in Amber Harding, OutKick contributor, to add in her two cents as to what she believes is actually going on here. Is this just a fluke? Or are we actually experiencing something much greater in mainstream media that we haven't seen for a very long time? So, Amber, come on in. There you are. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, Charlie. How was your weekend? My weekend was great. I had um, one too many martinis. Uh, but that being said, I ate a lot of good food and uh, I had a great time. How was your weekend? Anything fun? Uh, my, my weekend was relaxing, so it was nice. I had a, I had a busy week last week, so uh, I did a whole lot of nothing, which sometimes you really need. Uh, doing a whole lot of nothing is underrated. Uh, I am all about it. Taking a weekend to get some R&R, kick back, recharge the battery for the upcoming week. Uh, so I'm actually a little bit of little jealous that you went in that direction. OK, so, Amber, you heard me talking about SNL, uh, ESPN, the examples that we've witnessed over this past weekend and the fact that they actually have been the opposite of what we've seen from them recently. So do you believe this is a fluke or do you believe the pendulum swung so far in one direction to the left that now there is just no option but for it to come swinging back the other direction. I mean, I do I do feel like we reached a point where you can't go any farther left, especially that skit um, that SNL did. I can't I want to say it was last summer, or fall. I can't remember exactly when it was, but uh, the one where they basically lectured everyone about how children should be able to have sex change surgeries. I feel like once they went that far left, there was no there, there was no farther you could go. So, um, I, Shane Gillis was, it was, I was glad that they had him on. It was actually pretty funny. I'm sure it felt like redemption for him because SNL, maybe they're starting to realize that tiptoeing around people's feelings, it doesn't make for good comedy. As far as ESPN goes, I think the real litmus test will be next month. You know, they talk about coaches who happen to be black, but next week is, or next month is women's history month. So, We'll see if they celebrate uh, female athletes who happen to be dudes, because that's what they did last year. Uh, well, yeah, they, they did do that last year. And I remember when I got to OutKick and Fox, that was a, initially what I was talking about. I was saying, you know, for someone, because you also do remember at one point, ESPN made it very clear, or they tried to at least, we are not doing politics, we're leaving them out. Uh, we want to just stick to sports. But then, you know, Leaving politics out means leaving conservative politics out. But of course, if it's woke politics, uh, like celebrating Leah Thomas during Women's History Month, that was a OK. Yeah, and that's what it was, is they weren't they were never abandoning politics. They were just abandoning one ideology. Um, and that's and we saw that we've seen that multiple times. We saw it with your situation. We've seen it with Sage Steele. We've seen it with Sam Ponder. Um, so but maybe maybe. This is a sign that uh, they're actually going to start having a more balanced outlook on things. I'm going to be skeptical until I see some some real changes over there. But, you know, you just never know. And then as far as the Shane Gillis monologue, I watched it all eight minutes, thought it was hilarious. Um, I love that he I love that he went so hard. It wasn't I mean, it was anything that he was shamed for before on SNL. He just went full throttle ahead. Uh, he made the homophobic slurs. He made the racial slurs. Uh, a lot of them having to do with his own family, right? And I mean, self-deprecation is a big part of comedy. Um, I really appreciated it. Do you think the reason that 
Because he kept mentioning, he's like, oh, I thought that was going to get a bigger laugh. Or, oh, I thought I would have heard more laughter from the audience from that one. He made a couple of those comments. Do you think that people are still just afraid to laugh because then they're also put into the hateful camp? Uh, because I have to imagine there were a lot more people in the audience that would have laughed uh, than, that, than what was portrayed on the, on the broadcast. Yeah, I think so. And we've seen that time and time again, where people are afraid to laugh, afraid to talk about certain things, afraid to even say how they really feel about something because they're afraid of the backlash. So I think that could have been the case. You don't want to be the first person that laughs at a joke about Down syndrome, right? Yeah. So I think that that's probably <laughs> what was a little bit of what was going on yesterday. But I did love that Shane was like, look, I, I can't, most of the things that I talk about, I can't say on TV. So um, he he towed the line just enough, but they did let him get away with a lot. So, um, you know, the tide might be turning over there. Yeah, one of the funniest lines that came from him, and he was talking about people with Down syndrome. And I actually have a family member who has Down syndrome. Um, so I, I can speak to the truth in this. He was like, they're always happy. They are never in a bad mood, which is so true. Uh, it's like one of the, one of the beautiful things uh, about people with Down syndrome. They just have like this really jolly outlook on life. It's wonderful. And then he went on to say, you know, they are not the ones who are concerned about the upcoming election, which just made me laugh because, you know, while the rest of us are completely stressing, uh, you have some people who just do not care. So uh, that was one of my favorite lines from Shane Gillis uh, during his monologue. But now, Amber, let's switch over to uh, another event that took course over the weekend. Uh, and this is something we've been talking about for some time now. It's the the idea of court storming, right? Uh, there's a lot of people who celebrate it. Uh, they feel like it's part of the game, really bears um, a semblance to how excited people get. And it's, you know, it shouldn't be taken away from students. But then there's the others who realize the problems that come along with it, especially in the case of uh, Duke player Kyle Filipowski. He's a seven-footer, one of their star players. He got kind of caught up in a tangle uh, over the weekend when Duke was beat out by Wake Forest, a big upset for Wake Forest. All the, the students started storming onto the court now there are some fines that are coming up that could be associated with court storming. What is your overall feeling about court storming? Do you like it? Do you not like it? Should it stay or should it go? I do find it interesting that that sort of thing would never be allowed in professional sports, um, but for obvious reasons, but the fact that it's so celebrated in college and, you know, there's been a lot of talk since this happened about banning court storming, but I'm not really sure how you can go about doing that. I know in the SEC, schools get fined $100,000 for first defense, then $250,000, then $500,000, but the students don't care about that. And that money just ends up being the fans' problem, right? Higher ticket prices, more expensive beers, whatever. But I think rather like the, the court storming thing really comes down to like, I, there have to be some standards to it. I feel like we've gotten to the point where kids are just rushing the court for every little midseason win. And that's just loser behavior to me because it's like you, you're just acting like you never expect to win anything. But obviously a high profile player like Kyle Filipowski at a legacy program getting hurt like this is going to shine a light on the problem. But I don't really think it's going to change anything. You know, 20 years ago, there was a high school player who had a scholarship to Stanford and he was actually partially paralyzed in a court storming incident. We've seen oh, wow. people throw wheelchairs. We've seen fans get in altercations with players and it's still kind of encouraged behavior to do that. So I, I think that this is just a firestorm right now, but I really ultimately don't think Kyle's twisted knee is somehow going to magically be the catalyst for change. Yeah, and, um, you know, talking about encouraging 
behavior. Jay Billis, um, former Duke player uh, and current ESPN analyst, uh, he mentioned, as he specifically said, uh, you know, other leagues don't show crazy fans on the field. Uh, so the, the question is, why is it allowed in college hoops? And, and even further than that, why is it celebrated? Um, he said, quote, we love it. We end every highlight with it, but we shouldn't because, like you just said, it is encouraging the poor fan behavior. Uh, and on the note of Kyle Filipowski, obviously this is disruptive for his season. Uh, a big guy, uh, especially for big guys like that, it's even harder to rehab those types of injuries uh, You know that happened to the lower extremities. So here was his reaction when he was asked about the court storming that took place. You know, I, I felt a bunch of hits on my body. I, you know, I just, this one was the worst of them. Um, you know, so it's just, like I said, it's just really ridiculous of, of, of how, you know, that situation is handled. Did you feel like it was, was on purpose or was it incidental? I mean, if, punch, I've like already it? heard that there's some videos of, of, you know, getting punched in the back. And um, so I absolutely feel like it was personal. I mean... Wow. I mean, that's especially saying something if it actually was intentional to hurt this player that that just takes us to a whole different level. But Dan Dockich, uh, obviously another member of the Outkick Network, always outspoken, arguing that it took this incident for the NCAA to care about court storming. Let's hear what he had to say. You know, back in about 2005, I had a really good team at Bowling Green and we got a player back named Jermaine Fitch. who was really good, like really good. Uh, 2004, and we had just beaten Toledo with a big second-half comeback. And Fitch, coming off of two ACLs, played great. Like, he's a pro. And we win the game. I hit my assistant already on the leg. I go, man, I don't think anybody's beating us now. Well, guess what? Crowd rushed the floor. Someone jumped on my guy Jermaine Fitch's back, tore his ACL. Career was over. It was his third, and he didn't want to go through the rehab, and I... Well, I didn't blame him. I said at the time when Jermaine Fitz lost his career that nothing was going to be done, and I did say this, until a Duke player gets hurt. Nobody cared about a Bowling Green player. Nobody was going to be on Mike and Mike or College Game Day talking about a Bowling Green player. I knew that. We all knew that. But now it takes a Duke player to get hurt, and we're all supposed to be in an uproar. All right, I'm especially... I mean, I look at a lot of different incidents across the board. Um, you know, when you talk about trans athletes in sports, you know, if it were to happen in the bigger, you know, high visibility sports, we probably would care more. Swimming maybe doesn't have as many eyeballs on it as an example. In this case, uh, a Bowling Green player not going to catch the national publicity like a Duke player would. Um, but my personal feel is, uh, I guess, when you do see the, the instances of, of students getting hurt, time and time again, especially now, one that is a star for Duke's team, uh, they probably need to take this a whole lot more seriously. Yeah, and, you know, we we talk about the players getting hurt. Um, Caitlin Clark, even, you know, she's a big superstar basketball player for Iowa. Yes. Um, she, got, she got a little shaken up last month in a court storming incident. So we see it happen with the players. But what definitely doesn't get talked about, to Dan's point, is 
the fans getting injured because we don't hear about that, right? But you can't tell me, especially during these football games, when you have 50,000 fans running onto a field at full speed, that people aren't getting hurt. Like it is a safety issue. You know, they're very concerned about safety during storms and they'll stop the game if there's lightning and things like that. Um, but for whatever reason, this has always just been glossed over. And it's not just the athletes who can get hurt here. The fans are definitely putting themselves at risk too. Yes, that is a very good point. Um, I would be curious. I don't know how we would ever come up with the information. Uh, who has gotten hurt? Maybe they should do some type of online poll. Have you ever been hurt in a court storming uh, incident? Because it is. It's kind of like a stampede. Um, okay, let's move on now to a story that I know you're going to have some some great reactions to. We saw a video that a girl put online. She is a professional golfer. She was out practicing her swing, minding her own business. And of course, a guy has to jump in and try to correct her form. I have to imagine this guy is not a professional golfer, Amber, uh, but this video was insanely good. Uh, so let's take a look at it and come back and react. Okay, I'm, I'm going through... Um I'm going through a swing change at the minute, so everything I'm... Yeah, so, I mean, I'm going through a swing change at the minute, so with that, I'm just making everything... <laughs> yeah, thank you. I don't think that was... Yeah. No, I'm actually going through a swing change at the minute, so everything's slow um, in order to get... I don't know whether you see... You watch golf, the best players in the world, when they are making a, a practice swing or they're going oh, through a change. <laughs> Thank you for your advice. I mean, this guy is relentless. And then he tries to take credit, which I love, for her improved swing. Uh, thank you, sir. Okay, Amber, the first thing that I... I registered when I watched this is how nice this girl was to this ultra annoying guy because I... I probably just would have taken one comment from him and be like, sir, I am a professional golfer. Please kindly shut the F up. Like, I just do not think I would have been nearly as nice as she was. What was your reaction here? That was my immediate first reaction, too. I was like, wow, <laughs> what a sweet and kind person. I could never. Um, but, I, you know, I don't even know. Like, thank God that guy was there, right? Like, she's so much better at golf now. But I, I don't know that her telling him that she was a professional golfer would have changed anything. Um, and I, I yeah. wrote about this last week because I, and I'm sure you've run into this situation before too, where being a female who works in sports, and again, I'm not talking about all guys, so don't come after me guys, but being a female who works in sports, I don't typically like to tell strangers what I do for a living because there's always that guy, always that guy that's like, oh, you're a sports writer? Well, name five players on the winning 1995 <laughs> World Series team. And I'm like, really? I mean, come on. Like, I don't go to your place of work and quiz you on your knowledge, right? So I, I don't know that her telling him she was a professional golfer would have changed anything at all because I'm sure that guy, um, obviously, since he felt the need to give his unsolicited opinion, feels really strongly about his own golf skills. Um, but kudos to her. She handled it. She handled it so nicely and so sweetly. I just, I, I don't think I could have done the same. She handled it like a pro, no pun intended. Uh, but to your point, I actually always, whenever I get into an Uber, especially, I feel like Uber drivers, they love to just start engaging. Oh, you do this, this, that. I always lie, always. Like, especially when you can't, when it's obvious you do something in sports. Like when I'm in Vegas and I roll up to 
the UFC Apex. Like, they obviously know that I work there. Otherwise, I wouldn't be going. So I just lie. And, and they're like, oh, you work for UFC. What do you do? And I'm like, oh, I do marketing. Like, I just, I don't even go there. I try to always just deflect. And then even when, you know, they don't have an idea of what even field I work in, I just lie. And I'm like, oh, I'm in ad sales. And then I'm like, I pr- I'm pretty sure you won't have anything to ask me about ad, ad sales. And if you do, then please, God, just spare me. <laughs> yeah, that's what you do. You got to just pick like I do the same thing, especially in Ubers uh, at Ubers or in Ubers at bars. Um, any situation like that where I don't want to get roped into a conversation with a stranger and have to ask intrusive questions about my job. Um, I typically just don't say, but I, you just got to pick the most boring, the most boring profession you can think of that nobody is going to really be interested in asking (laughs) questions about and they'll move on to something else. Uh, well, you clearly do not have a boring profession. You are the opposite of dull, uh, which is why now starting every Wednesday, we can get hyped up for woman'splaining to drop. So we're switching from Friday to Wednesday. Um, I know that right now you're still in the works of developing the column for this week, but would you like to drop any tiny little nugget to entice everybody, a little crumb, if you will. Yeah, so we're going to talk about um, golden retriever boyfriends. It's become a huge trend on TikTok. I'm not sure if you've seen it, Charlie, but basically there's this idea that uh, women have started to become obsessed with the idea of of having a boyfriend who's basically a big dumb oaf and follows her (laughs) around everywhere, gets excited when she comes home, um, and just essentially acts like a golden retriever. So um, we're going to make fun of that a little bit and talk about why that might be a little (laughs) bit problematic. Uh, and then I'll also, um, the other comparisons that women on TikTok uh, have made, um, to dogs and, and guys. So we're going to, we're going to have some fun with that one. Oh my God. That is fun. And I will say, I'm not, I'm not one, I'm not like a huge golden retriever fan, uh, because I, and I do, I understand like the, the sentiment behind it. So I wouldn't want that. But that being said, Amber, I think you should also just include maybe a little snippet in there, you know, regardless of what dog you want your, your significant other to be portrayed as or to, you know, reflect men absolutely can be trained. And that is a fact. So I'll just leave, I'll just leave you with that. You are not wrong, Charlie. (laughs) All right, Amber. Well, thank you so much. And we will talk to you soon. Can't wait for Wednesday. Great. See you later. Outkick the morning. We'll be right back after a short break. Stay tuned. All right, Amber's fantastic. Uh, Someone else who's fantastic. Uh, Someone who has developed a competitor to Amazon, but with these companies that are on this platform, no woke identity politics, similar to the story I was discussing at the beginning of the show. Uh, It's called Public Square. So without further ado, let's get to my conversation with the CEO and founder of said Public Square. Here you go. And now I am joined by Michael Seifert, the CEO and founder of Public Square. I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm very well aware, of course, of Public Square. I feel like most people who are familiar with the moniker Go Woke, Go Broke, have to be familiar with Public Square because you actually have created a platform to embody all of the companies that have not gone in that direction so far. How did you come up with the idea for this? Well... It's great to be with you. First of all, thanks so much for having me. We came up with the idea largely in response to the woke companies that have dominated corporate America for the past decade. They have lost control of the narrative. They have prioritized 
things like DEI or ESG or social engineering, politicizing the marketplace, they've prioritized those things above excellence, meritocracy, the production of quality products and services. And we wanted to bring things back to our roots. We wanted to focus on the basics. And we had two options. We could either complain about the woke stuff, simply boycott, or we could move our money in a more positive direction. We could be known more for what we're for rather than just what we're against. And so we decided to get put together publicsquare.com as the nation's largest marketplace of businesses that you should shop from. That way, when any of these companies do go woke. You're not stuck just scratching your head wondering where you go. You can actually move your money toward a company that believes in the classic principles of this great nation and will protect the values and the excellence ascribed in our constitution. It's pretty exciting. It is exciting. And it's exciting for people that are so commonly familiar with a place like Amazon, right? You want to go to one place where you can find all different types of things. But what you've created is almost, it's an Amazon type but with companies that uphold the values uh, that make sense for you to shop with them, right? You're not supporting places that are going against your beliefs and traditions. And uh, it's pretty remarkable what you've been able to do. How many companies do you have on Public Square right now? 80,000 now. Wow. So we have, yeah, 80,000 small business vendors on the platform in just 20 months. It's been an amazing journey. And they're all driven there largely because they want to do two things. Number one, escape the cancel culture matrix that they've been stuck in. Facebook, Google, these different platforms really handicap their abilities to advertise and display themselves to customers without fear of cancellation. And then the second reason is, you know, they've really enjoyed the community. The Chamber of Commerce in the United States used to be an example of an institution that would protect the interests of American small businesses. But unfortunately, the Chamber of Commerce has completely abdicated that responsibility. They have left behind the American small business and the workers associated with them. And so the small businesses, 80,000 of them on our platform today, have really found a home here, a real community. And it makes it so much more than just a transaction experience. It's pretty special, the type of network that's been created. And how many customers? I don't know if you were able to keep track of how many people have made purchases on Public Square so far, but you have a ballpark range if if not. Yeah, I mean, we've we've had over 2 million consumers now. It's pretty incredible to witness how fast this thing has grown. We actually hit a million members on our platform, which was a big milestone for us. Faster than Twitter, Airbnb, Spotify. And, you know, I think that actually speaks less about our company, more toward the hunger of the American people. Yeah. You know, we wouldn't have grown that fast had the American people not been hungry for a solution. After things like boycotts of Target or Bud Light happened last year, you know, the American people were hopeful enough to actually seek out alternative solutions rather than just being frustrated at the current state of things. And uh, without that hope for a better kind of American economy moving forward, we wouldn't have grown as fast as we have. So it's been really a credit to the people for building this company. Well, and a credit to you, right? Because if you wouldn't have built the platform, people wouldn't know where to go or have the resource to go where they're going. What is your background? Were you always involved in politics or what led you to create Public Square? I've always been passionate about politics uh, since I was a kid, have been fascinated by the ways that society would organize themselves and what values would hold a society together. And certainly uh, I've, I've been inspired by our founding fathers whose sentiment largely was that our constitution is only for a virtuous people. You have to have truth, objective reality at the heart of whatever society you try to create, because at the end of the day, anything else will fall apart. Well, when you translate that into an economic environment, 
um, you find that if you don't have order, if you don't have objectivity, if you don't have uh, a real sense of meritocracy or excellence in the heart of your economy, uh, or fairness even, you'll start to collapse. And when we see social engineering, affirmative action, focusing on external stakeholders like the climate when you're simply trying to create a good business, <laughs> you start to take your eye off the ball and things begin to collapse. My background was in marketing um, from a professional standpoint. And I actually ran marketing for a, a company that represented about 40 different small businesses. And so it helped them grow in advance. And Learned firsthand the plight of the American small business. They're the backbone of our economy. The economy could not exist without small business, without American Main Street. And yet these corporate oligarchies that have really partnered with a bureaucratic government out of Washington, D.C. have sort of forgotten the, the importance of the American small business. They've sold off our jobs to foreign labor. They have forgotten about Main Street. And so our goal is bigger than the right left. It's bigger than the social issues. It's actually how do we, at a very deep core level, protect the very fundamental aspects of American enterprise? And uh, if we can't do that, we don't have a future that I can feel proud about passing on to my kids and their kids. And so, uh, yeah. yeah, everything that we've done to date's helped us to build a solution for the now and the future. You know, it's so interesting because your background is in marketing. I'm sure you watch commercials, you're watching programming and, and and noticing things on a different level than most people. But even just as an average consumer, I watch a series of commercials on TV and it just astounds me that every single commercial is just completely infiltrated with DEI. I mean, you're seeing the most unrealistic representations of families, right? Because they have to put in the interracial couples, they have to put in, you know, the 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 child that doesn't fit within the, the family mold. It's just because they feel like they have to do it. And it's just every single commercial. And I also would count. I'm like, wait a second. You know, I watched five commercials right now and I've seen a total of maybe two white people in all of them. I mean, it's it's honestly pretty crazy um, from a marketing perspective. I mean, is that just something we should just completely get used to seeing? I mean, it's something we have been getting used to seeing for some time now. But I mean, it's just every single day, every week, every month, it seems to be taken a step further. Well, I'm hoping that we're actually wow. getting to a fever pitch, a sort of breaking point, because, you know, Google last week, for example, launched Gemini AI, which was their oh, competitor yes. to the open AI uh, model. And <laughs> If you were, if, if anybody was tracking along with the story, it was rather humorous because Google oh, we, we actually were tracking had to, it. Believe me, yeah, <laughs> Google had to apologize because they went so full bore DEI. There was a very funny prompt. Somebody asked Google Gemini AI to create a European family. That's all they asked: a typical European family. And what Google produced was a white woman who was in a wheelchair, a uh, a black man. Uh, who had only three legs and then a dog that only had three legs. That no, was their the dog. typical. Yeah, exactly. Even the dog had to be disabled. They, it's like the, the AI was taught to check a certain amount of boxes anytime they display any sort of representation. And by the way, if you look, this has been going on for years. This Gemini release was just sort of the, the breaking point of all of it. But if you go back to even casting calls for commercials, 10 years ago, 
you started to see these quotas that every commercial would have to fill. We are looking for a black man aged in this range. We're looking for an Asian woman in this range. We're looking for the problem with this type of stuff is not only that it's silly and it's ridiculous and nobody actually wants to be viewed by the color of their skin. Nobody wants to feel like they're being lectured by progressive social issues every time that we're just trying to watch a commercial. But deeper than that, it's rather sinister. I run a company. We have nearly 100 employees. If I were to, on a hiring page, say, I need these boxes checked related to ethnicity or race or gender, what that does to the psyche of the person who's being hired is rather detrimental because let's say I hire someone based upon these social quotas, these boxes I had to check, that employee will never know with true assurance whether or not they were there and hired because of their skill set or solely because of the immutable characteristics of their skin. They will never know whether or not they're doing a good job and being promoted and advanced because they're the right fit and they have the skills to prove it or because they checked the social diversity box. That's an incredibly demeaning thing to do to someone uh, to make them live with that sort of discertainty. And so uh, I want to get back to the basics. You are the right person for the job and that is why you are here full stop. Just based on everything you're saying, I'm going to make an assumption. Where is Public Square located? Where Where's this home headquarters? We were actually founded in San Diego, but recently, about a year ago, made the move to Florida. I'm from okay. California. Flor- yeah, but I couldn't yeah. do it anymore. Okay, so Florida was, when I was imagining where it was, it just, you know, instincts kicked in. I imagined it would be in Florida. Um, okay, so... I actually, let's just start, you're a California guy. I mean, what was that like, kind of always holding these conservative values, growing up in a more liberal liberal area? Um, did you feel like you had to kind of mold yourself to conform a little bit more? Were you always a little bit more of standing out on your own and speaking your truth regardless? You know, what's wild is that California actually has the second largest representation of conservatives in the entire country besides Texas. So the problem with but California, San Diego, the area isn't isn't quite so conservative, is it? It's it's more purple. So the county board of supervisors, for example, in San Diego County is three two. So it's three Democrats, two Republicans, okay. and that's basically a representation of the entire county. It's about three point three million people. There's a heavy military presence. And there's a, a strong emphasis on family values from a lot of the sort of conservative, classic Americana um, inspired roots of San Diego. If you watch Top Gun, you know, that sort of speaks to the classic San Diego vibe. Yes. It was obviously filmed in San Diego. And I just watched Top real... Gun recently, actually, a few days ago. So good reference. It is a fantastic movie. Unfortunately, uh, there are uh, a certain group of people that are um, hell-bent on destroying San Diego and turning it into more of an L.A. or of a San Francisco. But ultimately, California's big problem is that while there are millions of conservatives, five million-plus registered Republican voters, uh, they cannot make any real serious ground. It's a supermajority for the left in both chambers at the state level. They cannot make any progress because, unfortunately, even with the sheer numbers of conservatives, they are still outnumbered by a wide margin. California is over 40 million people, and that's just the people that are included in the census that we know of. We know that there's even a far larger illegal immigration problem in California, accounting for millions of folks. And then in cities like San Francisco, that's a real problem because now they're allowing illegal immigrants to vote. So at the end of the day, um, you have a real you have a real issue 
in uh, California. And ultimately, as a business owner, we just couldn't do it anymore. So while I never felt like we couldn't speak our values in California because I had a real community of folks that were aligned with us, we did always feel strongly that you're under the heavy thumb of the most authoritarian progressive government in this entire country. And sadly, and this is why everybody needs to wake up, so goes California, so goes the nation. Biden and the administration out of, out of Washington, D.C., and really the entire left-leaning establishment in the United States more broadly, sees California as the model. And that should concern every American yeah. that wants any sort of semblance of a free country. Well, that would make sense why they see it as the model. It's completely going in the direction that they intend it to go in. Uh, and as we've seen, I think uh, California has had the largest mass exodus as as any state in the country, which says a lot because it is also the most beautiful state more than likely in our country. Uh, but as a businessman, you got to do what's best for business, which meant, of course, moving to Florida. Uh, and on the subject of business, uh, New York, obviously never a place you would imagine doing business and especially probably in the current climate, uh, as we're seeing what's happening to former President Donald Trump, uh, now having the threat by the New York AG of having his property seized from him if he doesn't pay this absurd civil suit debt, uh, which is, you know, 450 some million dollars. It's insane. A lot of businessmen are speaking up and saying, I'm done with New York. I'm, I refuse to do business in New York until this nonsense comes to an end. Uh, is that the same thing you're hearing in your circles where people are just completely wiping their hands of New York? Absolutely. And it's not just a boycott measure of New York in solidarity with the former president. Uh, it's also a protectionary measure. So, you know, these business owners understand that if they did that to him, they can do it to us too. So now is the is the precedent that if I speak out against the regime in power, that they can just seize my property. By the way, a property is worth whatever somebody's willing to pay for. That's it. That's how property value is established. If somebody's willing to pay for it, that is what that property is worth. So speaking of President Trump, uh, I just recently saw that you're going to be involved in a town hall on Tuesday uh, with his son, Don Trump Jr., Matt Gates, and yourself. I'll you know, front and center, uh, talking about what? What's going to be going on? Well, we are talking about the importance of American enterprise and protecting the small businesses that have built this great country. They're under attack from a globalist regime that wants to sell out our values to global stakeholders, as the World Economic Forum, for example, calls them. And uh, we believe that the forgotten men and women that lead Main Street America deserve representation and deserve to have their voices and their values, not just recognized, but protected. And so this town hall series is a broad way that we can around the country uh, stand in solidarity with the small business community of our country. And we have great leaders in regions around the country that are partnering with us in that effort. We actually uh, did a town hall earlier in the fall uh, with Jim Banks, congressman out of Indiana, running for Senate there. Uh, we've got another one, obviously, tomorrow, Tuesday, uh, with the great Matt Gates and Donald Trump Jr. in Pensacola, Florida. Uh, next month, March 4th, we're going to West Virginia and meeting with the state treasurer, Riley Moore, to talk about uh, the importance of standing against ESG. Uh, and then we're heading to Georgia. We're heading to Ohio. Uh, we're going to have an exciting uh, round of town halls here heading into the election. You know, the reality that we try to inspire in people is that while you can vote every two and four years at the ballot box, and you should, we should encourage people to vote, exercise your civic responsibility and your civic opportunity. You also need to recognize that you can vote every single day, every time you swipe your card. Anytime you spend your money at a business, you are empowering whatever that business is going to do with your money. 
And uh, we think it's really important that people of this great country spend their money with businesses that will protect this great country, that will celebrate the Constitution and the values protected by that great document. And this town hall is one way that we can help inspire Americans to do that. It's very exciting. Yeah, that's very cool. And one thing that I, I just you mentioned, swiping your card, every time you swipe your card, you're essentially in part voting, right? You're you're expressing your support uh, for certain groups, for forms of leadership. The problem is, is there's a lot of companies that don't make their values so visible. On the surface, it seems like, oh, I'm just going and spending money at Target, right? They have everything that I need for my family. Underneath the surface, you see the companies, the, the groups that they're advocating for, that they're supporting. How does one become aware? Of, of what well, the companies stand for, because a lot of times I feel like you'd really have to do a deep dive to figure it out. And a lot of people are just making very quick decisions when they're trying to buy something for their family or themselves. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and ultimately, at the end of the day, too, a lot of people, you know, especially in a challenging economy, price is just what matters most. And for a lot of Americans, it has to come down to what is the lowest price. Um, so what I would say is that Public Square is a great example of a resource, and we're not the only one, but we are a great example of a resource that helps Americans get educated on both sides of the problem. So uh, not just the company that's gone woke and what these companies are doing with their corporate profits, but also uh, how we can spend money differently. So for example, with Public Square, we run a buy ditch campaign. Uh, so if you go to our site, publicsquare.com, you'll see that there are uh, tiles where we show, hey, here's an example of a company that is taking your money and funding real atrocities. And here's what we encourage you to go to. We never want to show you the problem without showing you the solution. And so we try to help consumers make progress in a way that um, aligns with their values uh, so that you're not just lamenting the fact that these companies are running the wrong way. You can actually support the ones that are running the right way. And so, yeah, for, for us, I think that um, information is a very powerful weapon. Uh, the truth is really profound. A lot of companies today are continuing to reveal themselves in greater depth. Uh, Microsoft is a great example, as you mentioned. Chipotle is a great example. We have seen companies that uh, have these leaks of documentation from the inside. Uh, Target certainly had that happen last year in, in on quite a few accounts. So we encourage consumers, hey, pay attention, follow along with the news. There are great programs like yours that are covering this. Uh, and then take your information, bring your weapon to publicsquare.com. Uh, or Red Balloon if you're looking for a job or some of these other great sources in the parallel economy. And then you can actually move your money in a positive direction. Awesome. Well, that's a lot of great information. And I love um, I love everything you just said. I, I, I love that you also say you don't offer, uh, you don't show the problem without offering the solution. I think that's really important, uh, especially from a business perspective. So Michael, I'm so happy to have spoken with you. Good luck on the uh, series of town halls coming up and everything else, of course, in general. Uh, but it seems the train is not stopping for you. So keep on doing what you're doing. Well, thank you so much. We're having a blast while we're doing it, trying to change the country through the power of commerce and certainly appreciate the ability to talk to you about it today. So thanks for having Always. me. Outkick the morning. We'll be right back after a short break. Stay tuned. Another big thank you to Michael Seifert, uh, his town hall happening tomorrow in Pensacola, along with Matt Gates and also Don Trump Jr. So if we got any Floridians out there, I would definitely uh, 
encourage you to go check that one out. Finally, I'm going to leave you with this. Uh, this is just something to kind of startle you for the rest of your day because uh, definitely this is not what I needed to hear from Joe Biden. TMI, absolutely. Um, according to a new book, Joe Biden told a White House aide that the key to a good marriage or even just marriage is good sex. Um, Okay, so I'm going to just say it. I I agree with this. I actually do think that good sex is the key uh, to a healthy marriage. But I didn't need to hear that from Joe Biden. And honestly, the idea of of imagining Joe Biden having sex, uh, not something that I wanted on this Monday morning, but uh, here I am. Uh, Now that idea is living rent-free in my head and probably will for the duration of the day. So everyone, there's that. Is sex the key to a good marriage? I don't know. Joe Biden says so. Most of what he says is untrue. This might be the only thing that's ever come out of his mouth that has some factual basis to it. So that's it, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. I hope you enjoyed uh, all of the many different things we got into on this episode of the program. More coming tomorrow. Until then, follow me on social media at Charlie on TV, and I will see you tomorrow morning. Have a good one.